Well, good morning, everybody. This is Granny D, Dorothy Smith, out of Plymouth, Michigan. And I sure am glad that, like Susan, I can land on my feet. <laughs> I thought Victoria was going to be speaking today, but somehow we got through a misunderstanding and I lost her. So, and I was really looking forward to it because Victoria always has interesting things with her um, meditation that I am fascinated with. We'll get her back again, not to worry. So, let's start at the beginning. We have TR90, and we have Body Burn 30, two great programs to bring health and wellness to your lives. This is not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing event in your life. And that's what this, these phone calls are all about, are how to keep your ongoing event well. Because when you eat well and your body is healthy and you slim down where your fat percentage and your muscle percentage is high when your fat percentage is lower, that's what makes you strong and makes you be able to live up in the clouds and be well instead of down in the dirt and sick. And I've been down in the dirt and sick with cancer, and it sucks. And I love what we have with new skin because despite it all, I have never been so healthy. And part of never being so healthy is our calls because we share ways to make us strong. Thinking about making us strong as we age, I'm just going to add this one in because I've been thinking about it a lot this week, balance. Work on your balance, work on your balance. Because when you can catch yourself, when you stub your toe or you make a little trip, if you've got good balance, you catch yourself. And I just keep seeing people whom I care for as they age, when they fall, that seems to be the beginning of the downturn. And I'm going to do everything I can not to fall and have great balance. You should do the same. Another one that's important, and I'm going back to John Rady and Go Wild. I truly am fascinated with the things that he's taught me in this book. And I'm going to go back to what I was talking about last week and just restate a little bit. We were talking about the vagus nerve, and the vagus nerve goes meandering all over the body. It's kind of like the ancient nerve of the body. So... What he talks about next is breath. The, the, response, the one response over which we have control in turn exerts control through the alarm system that is the autonomic nervous system. Porget says he realized a long time ago because he is a musician, specifically a horn player, that the act of controlling the breath to control the rhythm of the music and at the same time engaging the brain to execute the mechanics of music works like mental therapy. To his mind, it has all the elements of a paranama yoga, a form of yoga that stresses breath control. Breath control is common in most of yoga, but also in meditation and even in modern-day evidence-based practices like cognitive behavioral therapy. Relax. Take a deep breath. This is the act of controlling the breath. 
This act of controlling the breath has a parallel brain response of calming our instincts for fear and danger. It is easy enough to see this in the deliberate practices like yoga, but the same idea applies to many more time-honored practices. Think about choral singing, Gregorian chants, even social music like bluegrass or blues derived from the chants and the work songs that the African slaves developed to, to help them tolerate oppression. There is, in fact, a musical thread throughout this idea. There is a bias in the system to detect what Porges calls prosody, the rhythm and the lilt we associate with music, singing, poetry, and chants. It is the form that becomes immediately apparent in our voices when we talk to animals or babies. You know it, we do it. We sing to our animals and our babies. And it is the language of our foundational relationships with our mothers. Prosody is the form of speech that the sand people used to engage the lions. Just can't you see them walking by and going, there's a sweet lion. Oh, what a great lion you are. <laughs> Just like we talk to our dogs. All of this begins to explain a curious finding among the bones and ruins of our ancestors, such as flutes carved from the leg bones of cranes. Recall that music or evidence of music appeared 50,000 years ago in that sudden flourish of evidence of cultural evolution that defines humans as humans. And ever since, music has loomed as a cultural universal. All known cultures and peoples make music, yet all of this also suggests that we lose something when the crane's leg bone gets replaced by an iPod. We lose the benefits of sitting in a circle of fellow humans and driving the breath and the beat that drives the music. The psychiatrist and neuroscientist Ian McGilchrist argues that music predated language and human behavior simply because it was more important, more necessary, and already developed by evolution in other animals like birds and whales. Language merely allowed communication. Music and its components, like lilt and prosody, facilitated engagement, even with other animals, even with the predators. It, is, it engaged the breath in its making. So, here we go. Connections to well-being. The vagus linkage suggests that these sort of activities might well extend beyond emotional well-being simply because so many of the physical maladies of modern times play out in the territory of the vagus nerve and the enteric nervous system. Maybe it's enteric, E-N-T-E-R-I-C. So, so many of our physical maladies of modern times play out in the territory of the vagus nerve and the enteric nervous system. Your yoga practice or your choral group may, may well have some leverage on your irritable bowel syndrome. 
sorry, let me try that again. Your yoga practice or your choral group may well have some leverage on your irritable bowel syndrome or the persistent pain in your neck for no apparent reason because both of these are wired to the signal path of the breath. But what of exercise? Pumping lungs and heart exertion. Pourget says it depends. Done wrong, exercise can drive the emotional response in the wrong direction because it, it relies on arousal, the physical arousal that is opposite to relaxation. But this is not the contradiction it seems to be. In much of the animal world, the choice is either fully aroused or fully shut down. But the sophisticated autonomic surface autonomic nervous system of humans allows us to accomplish both at once. The most profound statement of our ability to deal with contradiction is sexual congress, the state that demands arousal in the most basic and heart-thumping sense and at the same time requires maximal emotional openness and engagement, that is, trust. The standout ability of a well-adjusted human being is to handle both arousal and engagement at once in this and all other forms of social intercourse, which turns out in Pourget's view to be terribly relevant to that workout of yours in the gym. Simply plunking yourself on a treadmill or a stationary bicycle armoring with earbuds to shut out auditory signals from the real world and then watching cable, a cable news loop, the litany of today's lurid images, he argues this speaks straight to the reptilian reaches of the nerves. Remember, you are running as if in to flee. Running is set up for working the grooves of panic. The alternate, though, is a group activity, group play and exercise, the very sort of activity humans seem to have per preferred throughout the ages. Done right, this does indeed involve the arousal of the flea response, but also social engagement of teammates and competitors and the rich sensory messages from nature and the outdoors. Now, both arousal and engagement are ac activated meaning your heart, body, and mind, mind are fully involved in the most elaborate social, most elaborate of social exercises. All of this puts a new layer of foundation beneath developments like Eva Selhub's and Matt O'Toole's enthusiasm for the CrossFit gym because it seems to add the positive and the arousal together so that you get the calming effect. Even more deeply, it helps us to see further significance in the ancient activities such as persistence hunting. All was done in groups with sublime levels of engagement and communication among the members. Persistence hunting also required an almost instinctive level of understanding and predicting the movement of the animal being tracked, a skill that observers recorded as 
based in empathy. Isn't that interesting? So to be a really good persistent hunter, you had to have empathy. You had to understand the struggle of the animal that you were hunting. Very interesting. All right. We're going to start this today, but only just start it, and then I'll finish it the next day. Trauma. One of the best windows into the relevance of all this frames a view most of us would prefer to avoid, filled as it is with nightmarish visions, because while the vagus nerve is central to our trust and social connection, it is also central to terror, and to many of us, and too many of us live in the reptilian level of this response. The guy generally credited with having done more thinking about this than anyone else is trauma researcher Bessel van der Kolk, B-E-S-S-E-L van der Kolk, K-O-L-K. Poor Jays talked about trauma during our interview and at least part of the credit for that, he acknowledges, goes to his association with Van der Kolk. Van der Kolk grew up in the Netherlands, you think? But as a young man, he came to Boston and trained as a psychiatrist and then became involved, then became involved in treating veterans of the Vietnam War who were plagued with psychological difficulties as a result of their experiences. At this time, there is a vague notion of the source of these those troubles, lay, labeled in earlier war, wars as shell shock or battle fatigue. But as a result of working during the Vietnam area, era, psychiatry gave this problem a formal diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, a diagnosis that Vanderkoek helped to formulate. Shortly thereafter, though, he became interested in the problem as it plagued children, and he has founded a national network sanctioned by Congress to research what he calls developmental trauma. The difference between the problem in children and in adults is critical and serves as the main finding of the whole area of research. Child abuse occurs while a helpless brain is still physically forming, and so it locks in patterns of neural response, largely through mechanisms of fight, flight, or freeze. This means that the effects of childhood traumatic events linger, in fact, dominate well into adulthood, and in the same surprising ways that speaks directly to what ails us. And I'm going to stop right there. So let's have a think about why physical abuse and even getting paddles in school, why violence stays inside of us for all of our lives and is, does damage that is very, very serious. All right. Now we're getting into my behavior disordered area of special education because that was my specialty. Anyway, we've got some more stuff to talk about next week and how our, and how trauma affects us. I hope you have a great day. If you want to get on to One Team Global, there is training for those of you who wish to 
become distributors with New Skin. It's a great product. It's a great company. And I'll say thank you and goodbye for this Friday. Let me just get us unhooked. <laughs>